Apollo 11. Do you blindly believe or do you really know for a fact? To boldly split infinitives. To boldly split infinitives. The show for critical thinkers who don't simply swallow the official story without proper analysis. Whether it's 5G, false flags, forced fluoridation of our drinking water, Apollo 11, 9-11, or other important topics, you're in the right place here on To Boldly Split Infinitives with your host, Alan Tepper, author of The Castilian Conspiracy, The Royal Spanish Cover-Up, and several other compelling titles. I'm Ellen Tepper in the studio in Coral Gables, Miami, Florida, U.S., and we have on the line Marcus Allen, publisher of Nexus Magazine. Welcome, Marcus. How are you today? Thank you, Alan. Great to be with you. I'm doing pretty well. It's just finished the Nadal-Federer match. It was a very exciting tennis match. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm not sure if you're right now in the U.K. and Australia or perhaps on the moon. <laughs> Probably the last one is not too too probable, but... Well, I'm actually in the UK, so if you could imagine where London is. Yes. I'm about 30 miles south of London, which is about halfway down to the south coast in England. So it's it's a small country. Um, you drive 150 miles in the UK and you're halfway across the country. So we're talking a small place. But are the people lovely? Yes, and I love the way they sound when they speak. So it's good to have, I think you're the second person that I've interviewed that has a, or perhaps the third that, that has a British accent and I love the way it sounds. Oh, that's great. I would like to explain to our listeners how we met. You are the publisher of Nexus Magazine. I have in the past few years probably seen hundreds of hours of documentaries about Apollo 11 and uh, some other topics that perhaps in another day we might talk about if you are interested in talking about those topics. And among those many documentaries that I saw, I saw a, a presentation done by you, and it was very, very well done. And at that time, I didn't even have a show in English. I only had a program at that time in Castilian. But I decided to invite you via LinkedIn. And years went by, and now I've had a, a show in English for a while. And we came close to the 50th anniversary of, of Apollo 11, and a few months ago, you accepted my invitation, so I finally had your email, and I decided to invite you now, since we're in the month of the 50th anniversary. And so that's how we got connected, and I'm glad that you did it, and it didn't hurt anything, the fact that it took a few years to, to get a response. I know that sometimes invitations through these online platforms sometimes go into like a time capsule and we don't see the invitation until years later. I've, it's happened to me also on, on other social networks. So I'm glad that we're connected now. And let's talk a little bit about Nexus Magazine, and then we'll actually talk about Apollo 11. Okay, well, thank you for that uh, generous introduction. Yes, I am the, uh, I'm the UK publisher of Nexus Magazine. Now, Nexus Magazine is actually on sale around the world. It's on sale throughout uh, America, Canada, North, well, North America generally. I published the uh, UK and Europe edition of the magazine, which originates from Australia. Uh, that's, where it's a, that's where it's edited by Duncan Rhodes, who's the editor and publisher and owner of the magazine. He lives near Brisbane on the east coast of Australia, and he's been publishing or editing Nexus magazine for over 30 years now, 32 years. We've got uh, well over 100 editions of it. 
It's alternative news. It's the antidote to fake news these days, though there weren't such things as fake news when it first started. We cover subjects like alternative health treatments for disease, natural treatments. We cover future science, which is looking at, uh, I suppose you could call it in shorthand, anti-gravity or zero-point energy. Uh, we cover hidden history. Uh, we look at the stories of what's been going on our planet back in ancient times, ancient Egypt, Sumeria, what's happening in Peru, uh, Easter Island, and especially in India, and the unexplained. And there's a lot of things to cover there. Most people seem to like Nexus magazine because of the health articles. So Nexus magazine is, is your entry into a different world, a world of possibilities. Yes, and all of those topics sound very interesting. I have three sound bites that I would like to play during our conversation. I think the first two will be the way that we should start off. It's two clips from JFK. And the first one is probably common among people who have researched Apollo 11. But the second one, I only found out about it last week. So I think that many of our listeners may have never heard the second one. But I'll play the first one first. The first one is two minutes, 35 seconds. The second one is much shorter than that. So I'll play the first one just to warm us up to the topic. With the advice of the vice president, who is chairman of the National Space Council, we have examined where we are strong and where we are not, where we may succeed and where we may not. Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. I believe we possess all the resources and talents necessary, but the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long-range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. In conclusion, let me emphasize one point. It is not a pleasure for any president of the United States, as I'm sure it was not a pleasure for my predecessors to come before the Congress and ask for new appropriations which place burdens on our people. I came uh, with, uh, to this conclusion uh, with some reluctance. But in my judgment, this is a most serious time in the life of our country and in the life of freedom around the globe. And it is the obligation, I believe, of the President of the United States to at least make his recommendations to the members of the Congress so that they can reach their own conclusions uh, without uh, judgment before them. You must decide yourselves as I have decided. And I am confident that whether you finally decide uh, in the way that I have decided or not, that your judgment as my judgment is reached on what is in the best interest of our country. 
So that was 1961, and he was speaking to the U.S. Congress. And only two years later, the tone changed a lot. And this is a clip that I only heard for the very first time last week, but it was from 1963 when he spoke to the UN, and he changed his priority from being at a national thing to being a non-national, international thing. So let's listen to the second one, and then we can really start talking about the whole thing. Finally, in a field where the United States and the Soviet Union have a special capacity in the field of space, there is room for new cooperation for further joint efforts in the regulation and exploration of space. I include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon. Space offers no problems of sovereignty. By resolution of this assembly, the members of the United Nations have forsworn any claim to territorial rights in outer space or on celestial bodies and declared that international law and the United Nations Charter will apply. Why, therefore, should man's first flight to the moon be a matter of national competition? Why should the United States and the Soviet Union, in preparing for such expeditions, become involved in immense duplications of research, construction, and expenditure? Surely we should explore whether the scientists and astronauts of our two countries, indeed of all the world, cannot work together in the conquest of space. Sending some day in this decade to the moon, not the representatives of a single nation, but the representatives of all of our countries. That was a big change, don't you think? That was a major change. I believe that was a uh, that was that speech was given towards the end of 1963. Yes, in September, only two months before he was killed. That's right. So there had been a great deal happening between the initial declaration that the, the message to Joint House of Congress, which was actually May the 25th, 1961. But I think it's necessary to put it into context a little bit. That uh, the speech that. John Kennedy gave in 1961. It was, le- it was four months after his inauguration in January 1961. And bef- after his inauguration, he'd had to deal with two major events, which probably led to the declaration that he made to land a man on the moon. The first problem he had to face was the Bay of Pigs, the fiasco of the invasion of Cuba to try to overthrow Castro, who'd taken power there a couple of years earlier. That failed because Kennedy refused to go along with the um, recommendation of uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff to conduct some activity in Cuba that could be blamed on Cuba, but was actually initiated by the United States. We know today as a false flag operation. He'd had to deal with that. And then in early April 1961, six weeks before his address to Congress, Yuri Gagarin had been the first man to orbit the Earth. Now that occurred literally a few days after the first American was launched into space, and that was Alan Shepard. But he only went up 100 miles and came down again. He didn't orbit. Yes, it was Alan Shepard, not Alan Tepper, but Alan Shepard. It sounds similar, but it's different. It's spelled different, too. Yes, yes. A-L-A-N Shepard. But sometimes when I introduce myself to someone on the phone, they immediately think that I'm Alan Shepard, I guess because he was so known. He was certainly a very well-known astronaut, yes. 
But uh, it was John Glenn who was the first American to orbit the Earth, and that was about a year later. So that sets the initial point that America was seriously behind the Soviet Union, as it was known then, the Russian Federation as it is now. They were seriously behind because the, the Soviet Union had achieved a considerable number of first activities in space. They put the first man in space, we mentioned they put a first woman in space, they were the first man the first uh, nation to launch a satellite which landed on the moon or crashed into the moon in their case. America managed to miss the moon by 37,000 miles. They were the first to get to Venus, the first to get to Mars. They, They had very reliable rockets. And one of the problems that the American space program had was that the rockets were not terribly reliable. They kept blowing up, usually on launch, because they hadn't got their technology. Now, there was a secret weapon here. Following the end of World War II, A lot of the the German, or should we say Nazi, scientists working on the V-2 program, the Vengeance 2 rocket, which was fired, two and a half thousand of them were fired over London, or at London, quite a lot of them missed. But the Germans had a rocket technology which America very much needed. And Werner von Braun actually surrendered to the American forces. And you may have heard of Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip refers to literally the paperclip which attached to the biographies or the CVs of the uh, 100 plus Nazi scientists who were going to be imported into America uh, along with a large number of uh, yet unflown rockets. What was attached to their CVs was an, an additional piece of paper saying that they were not ardent Nazis because if they had been considered to be ardent Nazis, they wouldn't have been allowed into America. So this was a way of bypassing the restrictions put out by Congress to ensure that people who were not welcome in America could enter. So it bypassed that, and I think it's somewhere in the order of seven or 800 in total foreign scientists, many from Germany, who were not just to do with rockets, uh, rocket engineering, but also to do with biological warfare. And also, rather more secretly, nuclear warfare, because the Germans had developed the means to enrich uranium and had previously exploded a fairly crude nuclear bomb. One of the prizes of war was the importation into America by a German submarine enriched uranium for the use in the Manhattan Project and ultimately in the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and three days later onto Nagasaki. But uh, that's probably a different subject now. Yes, it is. And one of the things that people talk about, because I think for perhaps for some of the same reasons and some perhaps for other reasons that are unique to each one of us, because maybe we haven't heard all of the reasons, although you're certainly much more of an expert in this topic than I am. One of the reasons why many people believe that what we were presented with Apollo 11, with the Saturn V and everything, was just perhaps what we might call it the most expensive science fiction film ever made in the history of the world. One of the many reasons is because of something that perhaps, I don't know if he was your cousin or not, but he has, speaking of last names and mixing up last names, the Van Allen Belt, and and he shares a, a surname with you. Was he your cousin? No, he wasn't. Uh, he was, that's Professor James Van Allen. He was a professor at Iowa University in the late 1950s, where he uh, postulated, because he hadn't found out for real, he postulated the existence of what became known as the Van Allen radiation belts, which are belts of radiation which encircle the Earth in what you might call a donut-shaped. There's no radiation at the poles, North and South Pole, but they encircle the Earth. They're basically created by or held in place by the Earth's magnetic field. And uh, James Van Allen had said these possibly existed 
uh, the various research he'd done. And he was able to persuade NASA to put a Geiger counter onto one of the very first rockets, the Explorer 1 rocket that was launched in 1958, as part of the International Geophysical Year, where a lot of this research was being done by scientists uh, right across the world. It wasn't just in America or Britain. It was uh, right across the world. People were contributing to the IGY, International Geophysical Year. And part, and this was one of the uh, pieces of science that needed to be confirmed. So James Van Allen, Professor James Van Allen, persuaded NASA, which had been created in July 19, 1958, for various reasons, uh, one of which was so it could be seen as a civilian organization rather than a military organization. So it didn't upset the Russians. He put a Geiger counter on top of this rocket, sent it up several hundred miles up, and the Geiger counter started working, and they were recording the clicks that a Geiger counter makes when it encounters radiation. And then it stopped. Nobody could work out why it had stopped. And one of the ideas was that it stopped because it was overloaded. They hadn't set it to record sufficient levels of radiation. So following that, they put another Geiger counter on another rocket, sent it up with a much broader range of results and found that radiation, yes, was quite powerful, quite strong. And then it did fall off. And then it started up again. The clicks on the Geiger counter started up. So it was as if there were two radiation belts. And we now know that there are two radiation belts. Actually, there are three, but that's another story. There are two that were identified called the inner and outer belts. And they extend from about 800 to 1,000 miles above the Earth's surface out to about 25,000 miles above the Earth's surface by three Earth diameters. Earth is just over 8,000 miles in diameter. So they, they're quite a long way out. And the International Space Station, the Space Shuttle, they all fly well below these Valenian belts. They fly at about 250 miles above the Earth's surface. So they don't affect the International Space Station, they don't affect the Space Shuttle, they don't affect anything orbiting in what's called low Earth orbit. Low Earth orbit is up to about 300 miles above the Earth's surface. Once you get beyond that, you start to enter the Van Allen belts. And you that's the reason why they don't affect our artificial satellites either. That's for right. the same well, reason, because they're low enough. Yes, there are satellites which fly in what's called geosynchronous orbit. And these are the satellites which transmit, say, your, your satellite television programs. And they maintain their position above a certain location on Earth because their orbit speed matches precisely the rotational speed of the Earth. So, you know, um, as we know, the Earth rotates once every 24 hours. Um, it's going about a thousand miles an hour at the, at the equator, but we don't feel it. We don't get flung off because gravity helps us stay on, to keep our feet on the ground. So when you get to geosynchronous orbit, I, it's synchronous with the geo, which is the Earth. It maintains one location above a particular point on the Earth's surface. And those satellites actually are beyond the Van Allen belts. They orbit at about maybe 25, 30,000 miles above the Earth's surface, depending on where they, what orbit speed they need to maintain. But a satellite can be protected from the harm created by radiation. And it, it, it's, a technical term is the satellite is hardened against radiation. And it's quite simple to do. You just put uh, additional sheeting of aluminium. Uh, I recently visited a satellite manufacturing company in the UK called Surrey Satellite Systems, and they are manufacturing a lot of satellites. And I asked them that question, how do you protect against radiation in space? They said, well, we just put thick aluminium on. Aluminium will protect electrical connections. And this is a key point because humans cannot be protected in the same way. 
humans are very delicate little creatures when it comes to radiation. If you uh, sit out in the sun for too long, you'll get radiation damage. It's called sunburn. If you go into space, you have to be protected from it. And this is one of the major mysteries of space. It is one of the major defining points to indicate that the Apollo missions were not as advertised because humans need to be protected from the radiation of space. Equipment, not so much. Yes, it has to be protected, but it doesn't need nearly the same level of protection as humans do. So I thought, well, we've seen the Apollo astronauts wandering around on the lunar surface in their rather nasty spacesuits. And once you're out beyond the Valon radiation belt, you're exposed to all sorts of radiation. You're exposed to galactic cosmic rays, which come from deep space. But particularly, you're exposed to what's called solar particle events, which are solar flares, which are powerful enough to knock out electric grids are here on Earth. So I thought, well, if these uh, astronauts are protected from the radiation damage which they must be experiencing on the lunar surface, assuming they were there, could these same spacesuits be used by technicians to go into Chernobyl or Three Man Island or now Fukushima and clear up the mess? So I addressed my I, question. I love that example. I well, always it, bring up that example. It's a straightforward example. I mean, most people understand radiation as being unpleasant and not conducive to human health. And we've all seen the, the damage that a nuclear reactor can do. I mean, we've seen the, the, the extraordinary lengths that people are going to in Chernobyl to encase it in a huge, great shield because it's still radioactive because the, the reactors actually melted down and started diving off down to Australia, which is the, uh, the theme behind the film Chinatown. In uh, Three Mile Island, I didn't think it was quite that bad, but Fukushima, we know, is extremely bad. But you can't get to the reactor. It's still radioactive. It's still pumping out radiation. So I thought, well, these, these spacesuits must be able to help. They obviously protected the astronauts. At that time, no astronaut had uh, appeared to suffer any radiation damage. So I addressed the question to the manufacturers of the spacesuit. It's a company called uh, the International Latex Corporation, based on the eastern seaboard of the United States in Connecticut. And they said, uh, no, we built the spacesuits according to the specification that NASA provided us. We didn't build any radiation protection into the spacesuits. You better address your question to NASA. So I did. 20 years ago, I'm still waiting for the reply. <laughs> Obviously, the reply wouldn't be very helpful. Exactly. So we've talked about radiation. Now, another detail that I have seen that perhaps you have information to provide is that even if it weren't for the radiation, that before reaching the Van Allen belts, they would have reached uh, high temperatures that would be higher than the melting point of the material that the Saturn V rocket was made out of. Yeah, certainly in space where there is no atmosphere. I mean, we, we're protected here on the Earth's surface because we've got an atmosphere which to a degree muffles the temperature. All heat that we receive here on Earth comes from the sun as a, in the form of radiant energy. It's, it's the same as you know, if, you, if you stand in front of an electric fire, you can feel the heat coming off it, and that's radiant energy. In space, the radiant energy travels through, and it's a question I normally ask, so what is the temperature of space? And the answer is space has no temperature because there's nothing in space to have a temperature. It's only matter. It's only material that can have a temperature because you get excited molecules rushing around and bumping into each other. Exactly. I'm talking about the Earth's atmosphere before you reach the Van Allen belts. I understand that it gets hot there before you even go high enough to reach the Van Allen belt, and that would have melted the materials of the hull of the Saturn V rocket. 
Okay, it certainly gets hot. I would say the temperature is in the order of plus 150 degrees uh, Celsius, plus 250 degrees Fahrenheit, something of that order. Not hot enough actually to melt aluminium. Aluminium melts at about 600 degrees Fahrenheit. It's certainly relevant to mention it because the temperature of space or the temperature experienced in space by a spacecraft, because that has matter obviously and that can be heated up. If you ask anybody, what is the temperature inside a spacecraft? And the answer is 250 degrees Fahrenheit. And the calculation is quite straightforward. It's using what's called black body radiation, which is calculating the temperature of any body which emits or can absorb and emit radiation in space, like the Earth does. I mean, we're, we're a, a black body. It uses something called the Stefan Boltzmann constant to do the calculation. And you, t you take the amount of energy falling onto the craft, or in our case, the Earth, and you look at the amount of energy being reflected or radiated away from the craft or the Earth, and you can do the calculation to work out what the internal temperature of that body will be. And in the case of uh, a spacecraft, whether it's got humans in it or not, the answer is 250 degrees, which is about the temperature you'll spit roast your chicken at, i.e. quite hot. Yes, so even if they were able to get through the Van Allen belts, they would have had a tough time with the temperature. They would, yes. And, and that's actually one of the key points that they claim, or NASA claimed, that they put the spacecraft, the Apollo spacecraft, on their way to the moon, allegedly. They put the spacecraft into what they called barbecue mode, i.e. they rotated it three times per minute. Not very fast, quite slow, but it's rotating. So every minute or so it goes around, it, it rotates three times in order to spread the heat load, which is absolute nonsense because it doesn't matter how fast you rotate your chicken on your on your barbecue spit, it'll still cook and it'll cook all over. Agreed. So it's a, it's a silly keep... explanation. Well, yes, but that's the explanation that keeps popping up. We put it into barbecue mode. And they're all <laughs> proud about it. And I say, oh, goodness, hey, don't you understand about barbecuing chicken? One of the points about that is that obviously they were experiencing heat to a degree in their spacecraft. So how did they keep cool? Because the astronauts didn't cook and humans can't really survive comfortably and certainly not work at fairly technical matters at temperatures much in excess of about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a reasonable temperature of a, of a nice summit. Yes, of course, you can work in higher temperatures, but it's not quite so comfortable. So how did they keep the inside of the spacecraft cool? cool enough for people to work, as NASA describes it, in the shirt sleeve environment they were working in. They say, well, the obvious answer to that is air conditioning. I mean, that's, that's a good way to keep a, a room cool or keep a car cool or something like that. Wrong. You can't air condition something in a vacuum, and space is a vacuum. Nothing there. So where do you dump the heat? You can't. There's nowhere to dump it. Ah, it was radiated away. That is, the, that is the, the official explanation given. So uh, we've got a real problem here because air conditioning doesn't work in space. It can't. And yet they're radiating the energy away. If you, if you look at radiate, radiant energy is a very different thing from convected energy, which is what you get in a, in a normal house when you've got your fire on. It, it heats the air and the air convects around the place and warms the whole room. You can get conducted heat where you've boiled your kettle on the stove and you forgot to pick it up by the proper handle and you burn yourself, and that's conducted heat. So you do have this problem of trying, of trying to work out how on earth they managed to keep cool. And the spacesuits, you've got the same problem. Inside the spacesuit is an atmosphere because without an atmosphere, humans would go pop. So they have to be pressurized. 4.8 pounds per square inch, the internal pressure of the spacesuits. 
which is more or less what you'd need for humans to stay alive. But you've got to then circulate water through the spacesuits and then remove it so that the astronaut doesn't cook because he's standing in 150 degrees centigrade sun or 250 degrees Fahrenheit sunlight on the moon. And the lunar surface is pretty hot too. It's also radioactive, but uh, let's just leave that for the moment and just deal with the heat. So you've got all these problems that uh, appears to have been solved 50 years ago because we've all seen these wonderful films. They're being deluged out on UK television at the moment. I saw a film a couple of nights ago, Eight Days in Space, and that was the story of Apollo 11. It, it's a fantasy, complete fantasy, but people want to believe it. I wanted to believe it. when I, I, I'm old enough to have been around when it actually happened, allegedly happened. July 1969, I was living in London. I was watching it on a little black and white television. I was five years old. I saw it also. I thought it was live, but now I know that it wasn't live. Well, let's just ask one question. If, if any of your audience can answer this question, I'd love to be able to hear the answer. How on earth do you transmit live television pictures from the moon? Exactly. That's one of the points that I have on my list, because it takes a tremendous amount of electrical power to do that. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of watts of energy. That's what it takes. I mean, most te television transmitters, you know, they can transmit over 50, maybe 60 miles radius. But beyond that, you get breakup of the picture because it's not, there isn't enough power to transmit it. But how much energy is required to transmit over that distance? About 30 to 40,000 kilowatts, i.e. 30 to 40,000 watts. They couldn't have brought batteries large enough to do that for even a few minutes, let alone uh, over a week. You're right. Absolutely. And, and the battery power that was available on the lunar surface was a maximum of four kilowatts. But that power had to run all the other systems as well. Or we could say would have had if they were really there. Yes, you're right there. It would have had. <laughs> In fact, there's an interesting little film I saw it's on YouTube, which is called TV from the Moon. Are you insane? Yes, I think I've seen the same one. It's an interesting film because it, it explains in quite technical, easy to understand technical details why the whole thing was complete fabrication. Couldn't have happened. Yes. I think we should talk next about the photographic situation and the photographic evidence. Good. And I, I think there are two points to talk about there. One of them are the multiple shadows, and I'm the son of a professional still photographer, so I know about shadows and lights and uh, the, the, the length of the shadows and the and the angles, but uh, I'll, I'll let you describe it also. Go ahead. Okay, I, I think before we talk about the photographs, there's another thing that we should actually mention, which is the camera that took these photographs. The Hasselblad, without a viewfinder. <laughs> Hasselblad 500EL, electric motor drive. With no viewfinder. No viewfinder, and there was no means of identifying whether the picture had been taken because there was no viewfinder, so there was no click. And in space anyway, nobody can hear you scream, so you presumably can't hear cameras go click either. If there was no means of telling that a photograph had been taken because the shutter button on a Hasselblad is always on the front of the camera. And on the Hasselblad, they uh, made the shutter button about one inch square, but you couldn't see it from inside a spacesuit. So how do you know you would press the button? And how do you know you'd even got your finger on it because you're wearing a spacesuit? And you can't wear half a spacesuit. You've got to wear like, the helmet, the gloves, the boots, the whole kit. And how do you focus it properly? Ah, ah, magic. That is, that's magic. <laughs> because it was not... With thick gloves on your hands also. 
Yes, it's like, it's like wearing heavy-duty gardening gloves and taking your wedding photographs. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't have the precision with your fingers. No. And you wouldn't have the feedback of seeing when you reach the proper focus. Exactly. And in spite of that, we have absolute studio-quality photographs. We have brilliant. I mean, they are brilliant photographs. I would have been proud to take them because I, I, I was trained as a photographer in London in the 60s. I worked for years in, in fashion work, in advertising work, in photojournalism. I know what cameras can and cannot do. I know what film will record. And this is a key point. These are film cameras. They're not digital. They hadn't invented digital cameras 50 years ago. These are film cameras. And they were the most difficult ones to operate. Of that cameras that you could call handheld cameras, the Hasselblad was probably one of the most difficult ones to handle and to exactly. operate. Yeah. In, in fact, the, the Hasselblad camera was originally designed for the Swedish Air Force in World War II by Victor Hasselblad, and he did a brilliant design. It was uh, the, the camera was not really designed to be handheld. It was designed to be mounted initially in an aircraft, but most uh, photographers, in, you know, certainly when I was working in London, they would use them in studios mounted on big tripods because they're not easy to hold still, especially if they've got long lenses on them. And the key to the Hasselblad is the quality of the lens, the resolution of the lens. And on the, the lunar cameras, the shutter speed, the aperture setting, and the focus were all controlled by rings on the lens, which had to be moved by hand. This is not a point-and-shoot camera. Yes, and with the precision of your fingers. With the precision not through of your a, fingers. a very thick glove when you can't even see where you're putting your fingers or, or the result of what you're doing with your fingers. Exactly. So one of the things they did introduce was what's called a pistol grip, which is, as the name implies, it looks like a pistol grip, and it was mounted below the camera that linked to the shutter button. So all the astronaut had to do was to press it, squeeze it shut, and that would operate a mechanism which allegedly fired the shutter. Because this wasn't the only automatic feature on the camera was the film wind forward. It would automatically wind forward because it had little batteries. Batteries? On the moon, in minus 150 degrees centigrade, don't you think they might have had a little bit of a problem keeping working? I think so. But no, these are magic batteries too. So we've got magic spacesuits, we've got magic cameras, we've got magic batteries, but they all worked. I think David Copperfield was a, a consultant to NASA. Perhaps he was, and perhaps... Uh... The other guy that is associated with perhaps being involved. You aren't going to say Stanley Kubrick, are you? Many people say that he probably was, but I don't think that he would have had to. I think he could have been, but I don't think he would have been required to do it. No, I see no no incontrovertible evidence that Stanley Kubrick not only had the time to do, he was working on his masterpiece, 2001, A Space Odyssey, at the same time as Apollo was going through all the motions. I think he might have been consulted. There are certainly photographs which show senior NASA managers, senior NASA, NASA engineers and astronauts visiting Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, who was the scriptwriter of the film, at Borenwood Studios. So there's no doubt that NASA were there. Now, whether they were advising Stanley Kubrick on what the moon would look like, because by the mid-1960s, of course, NASA were fully aware of what the surface of the moon looked like, because they'd been up there with the lunar orbiter not to be confused with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which we'll come back to later. The Lunar Orbiter had taken photographs of the lunar surface because they were looking for good landing sites. This is when they still thought they could get there. I don't have evidence that he was involved, but I have evidence to indicate he shared the same opinion that you and I do, and he wanted to reflect it in two of his films. But knowing about it doesn't mean that you were involved in it. No, 
No, that, that's quite rude. But there is somebody else who was possibly associated with Stanley Kubrick, who would not only have had the skills, the experience and the knowledge to work with special effects using models, tabletop models and miniature sets, which when photographed look lifelike. And that was Stanley Kubrick's special effects director, Douglas Trumbull. That's a good piece of information to mention. Now let's talk about the photographs and the shadows. Okay, fine. What's the problem with the shadows that you've identified? Number one, there's more than one, and that indicates more than one light source. And NASA itself has explained that they couldn't bring any lights to the moon. So where were the multiple light sources? And also the length of the shadows, which indicates the, that they were at different heights, each light source was at a different height so that the same object can have one shadow that's shorter than the other. Yeah, that's true. It's certainly true to say that multiple shadows are only produced by multiple light sources and that Apollo didn't carry any additional light sources. So the immediate response on that one is, well, it's Earth shine, because obviously the Earth would be producing a certain amount of illumination, which would be, I mean, we see it's possible to read a newspaper by moonshine here on Earth. So, But knowing the effect of using fill-in lights and secondary lights on a film studio set is perfectly possible to eliminate any secondary shadows. And quite often, the shadows are not strongly enough defined to be picked up on the cameras. Because don't forget, these are film cameras, I must emphasize this, and they record light quite differently to digital cameras. Now, you're quite right to say that there were no additional light sources carried on Apollo. I'm, to be fair, I've yet to see very many multiple shadow angles. There are some. There are some. There's certainly one quite famous one, which is of an astronaut, I think it's on Apollo 17, where he photographs his own shadow. So the sun is obviously directly behind him. And just off to his right-hand side, there is a rock, a small rock, but his shadow is at right angles to his own shadow, which makes no sense. Unless there's more than one light source. Unless there's more than one light source or it's been manipulated in some way, which is possible. Much more important about the, uh, the, the photographs is a piece of information I only came across towards the end of last year, which was to do with the lunar orbiter that was flown in 1966, 67. There were five missions to the moon. They were unmanned and they were photographing the lunar surface. It also involves one of the original spy satellites Spy satellites were introduced following the um, shooting down of the U-2 spy plane because they could. And, uh, the Soviet Union shot down Gary Powers. You may remember that back in the mid-1960s. They decided that they would have an orbiting space station which could photograph the same, the same area that the spy planes cover. They could probably carry, do even more. The original one was called the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, the MOL and astronauts were trained to fly in it. It was actually cancelled when the Hexagon spy satellite was introduced in the late 1960s, which was uh, unmanned, but it carried incredibly sophisticated photographic equipment. Photographic equipment, note, not digital. Digital hadn't been invented by that point. Well, part of the testing that was done, both for the uh, lunar orbiter and for the Hexagon spy satellite, was how does film survive in space? Or even does it survive in space? And the answer was, no, it doesn't. It doesn't survive in the vacuum of space. And the reason for that is that photographic film is, consists of a backing sheet, backing plastic, and an emulsion coating, which is light sensitive. That starts life as a, as a liquid, and it's coated onto the backing sheets, and it dries. You can make it on rolls of film, make it on individual sheets of film. 
what they discovered was that photographic film breaks down in the extreme levels of vacuum, not just in low Earth orbit, but certainly further out. And that's where the lunar orbiter was flying. It was flying to the moon, where the levels of vacuum are many times higher than the levels of vacuum in low Earth orbit. And the way they got around this problem of how to use photographic film, because it was used in the lunar orbiter and in the hexagon spy satellite, the way they got around it was, was ingenious. All the photographic equipment, i.e. the rolls of film containing the unused film, the cameras through which the film was transported, and the buckets in which the film was then deposited to be dropped from the spy satellite, and in the case of the lunar orbiter, was to be then developed on the spacecraft and scanned, like we know scanning today. And then it was then read by another laser, and the interference by the uh, amount of shadow on the film would be recorded, and that was transmitted back to Earth, and that would then be reassembled in a photograph. But the whole photographic unit was contained in a pressurized environment, albeit quite a small pressure, 1.5 pound per square inch, which is actually 0.1 bar. A bar is atmospheric pressure at 14.8 pounds per square inch. So 1.5 pound per square inch is 0.1 bar. And the pressure was maintained by a um, canister of nitrogen gas, which wouldn't interfere with the film. The pressure was monitored. And they were very proud when they got the final results back that the pressurization had maintained virtually the same level of pressure throughout the whole mission. So they obviously constructed these pressurized environments on the spacecraft quite well. Now, that, that's, that's logical. But then we come to the Hasselblad camera. We'll come back to the Hasselblad camera. That was not pressurized. It couldn't be pressurized. Because they were outside of a, an environment. They, were, they were literally had them on their chest. They did. They had them on their chest. So the cameras were exposed to the extreme levels of vacuum on the lunar surface, assuming they were there. So if that is the case, none of the photographs that we have been shown by NASA as a record of their lunar landings were taken on the moon. They were taken here on Earth under controlled studio lighting conditions, which we know happened. It was called simulation. If they had an eight-day mission, which Apollo 11 was, it was an eight-day mission, the simulation was for eight days. That was to allow all the people involved in Houston, the mission control, the astronauts, all the people involved around in recording what was going on, would experience it for the time that it would take for real. That was all recorded. It was recorded, and perhaps some of the people were involved when they did those simulations. Perhaps they still thought that they were really going. The very, very few people would have known anything other than what we all watched on television. The 400,000 people who worked for NASA or not, not. Uh, they didn't all work for NASA, they worked for all the contractors like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Grumman, all the people who were supplying the various pieces of kit to be assembled. They were doing the very best job they could. They were building little bits of rockets, they were building the control centers, they were building the spacesuits, they were building the rovers. They didn't know any of any. They thought that it was really going to the moon. Yeah, they really thought it was going to the moon. They were very proud of it because that's what they were fulfilling their now by dead uh, president's challenge. JFK had been assassinated in November 1963. We're talking 1969, so it's six years later. And they were very proud of being able to fulfill that challenge because JFK was seen as an honorable man, which he was. Very, very few people would have had the full picture. The, the term used to describe it is called compartmentalization. It's a military term where you know just enough to do your own job because you don't need to know anything else. So concentrate on your own job, do the very best job you can, don't get involved with other people, just keep it going. If it's a matter of national security, 
which the Apollo missions were a matter of national security, nobody would would dream of doing anything other than what was appropriate to achieve the objective. If you're working at Boeing or General Motors, who were building the lunar rovers, you wouldn't know anything other than what you had been asked to do. You'd design it according to the plans that were supplied. You would go ahead, you'd be very proud of it. You'd go home, you'd tell your family, I'm, I'm working on a bit of the moon landings. And the family would be proud too, because they would they'd feel part of the whole mission. So what we saw on television, the rocket taking off, that was for real. Two minutes after it took off, it disappeared from sight. And then sight. they pressed the play button. Yeah, and they press the play button because the only source of information at that time, following the two minutes that it dis when it disappears out of sight, about 40 miles up, about 100 miles downrange over the Atlantic, was NASA. We rely on NASA. Never a straight answer. Exactly. I want to comment one more thing about the photographic or motion picture images before we continue with other topics that I want to ask you about relating, of course, to Apollo 11. The one that's remaining is in the famous scene where Neil Armstrong is climbing down from, I guess, the lunar module to the surface, he is in pitch black except for his suit, as if there were a spotlight. That's right. He's being filmed from overhead. He's being filmed from above. Uh, that would have been, Buzz Aldrin would have been doing the filming at that point. He he had a camera mounted in his left-hand window of the lunar module. That's called the Eagle. He's about 10, 12 foot off the ground. That camera features later as well. It's a film camera. It's, it's made by Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R. It's a 16 millimeter film camera. It's set to, to expose at one frame per second throughout the whole time they were on the lunar surface, just over two hours. And as Armstrong walks down the ladder and you watch him from overhead. He suddenly, he's in pitch black when he starts, but, but when he gets to the bottom, it suddenly gets very bright as if the aperture of the camera had been opened, but it didn't have a viewfinder, this camera. Well, film cameras don't basically have viewfinders. And anyway, you, you've got a small eyepiece on some film cameras so you know where you're pointing it, but you couldn't use that wearing a spacesuit, which Buzz Aldrin would have been wearing a spacesuit at that point because they'd opened the door, so they depressurized the craft, and it was a vacuum of space. And suddenly, Neil Armstrong is lit up. I won't say lit up like a Christmas tree because that comes later, the lighting up like a Christmas tree. But how did he know to open the aperture to let more light into the camera to illuminate it more? Because there's nothing on the voice records, there's nothing on the commentary which indicates Mission Control at Houston are looking at this, obviously. Nobody says to Buzz, Buzz, open up the shutter another couple of stops, it's a bit dark. They don't say that. But as you say, it's as if somebody switched on a spotlight. Right, and there also would have been a delay, and he would probably be already down the ladder by the time they were able to make a comment like that. Yes, they would. They would. Because he was, he was quite, he, uh, he went down the ladder quite fast. And, and, and just to come back to the Christmas tree analogy, most people are obviously very familiar with the photographs of, uh, in this case, Buzz Aldrin coming down the ladder. Uh, these are photographs. They were taken by Neil Armstrong, who was first out onto the lunar surface. He'd got his camera hooked up at this point, and he's photographing Buzz Aldrin coming out of the porch, down the ladder. And it's a sequence that takes just over three minutes, according to the uh, audio records. And uh, now taking, and there are eight photographs in this sequence. And anybody can check this. You can go onto any of about four websites where all the photographs are available online. Look for Apollo 11, Magazine 40, that's the key one, Magazine 40, not 44, not 37, Magazine 40. That's where all the 
Apollo 11, EVA, extravehicular activity, i.e. moonwalk pictures are, are shown. There's 120, 121 of them in total. And towards the beginning, when Buzz Aldrin is walking down or coming down the ladder, there are eight photographs in total in the sequence. Six of them are of Buzz Aldrin. Two of them, Neil Armstrong obviously got bored stiff watching Buzz scrambling out of the uh, top of the ladder. So he took a photograph of the rubbish bag under the craft and a photograph of one of the, one of the landing legs which rather strangely is completely devoid of any form of dust, which you would have thought would have been moved around by the uh, rocket as it landed the craft. You'd think they'd disturb a bit of the soil and it might have landed in the footpad, which it, which it doesn't. So obviously nothing from the moon can adhere to anything from Earth. But it's a, it's a mystery because if you look at any of the landers, including the landers on Mars, but earlier landers on the moon, this, the surveyor, lander, which did soft land on the lunar surface, and that was using a retro rocket to slow it down, there is dust all over the footpads, as if it had been blown up by the rocket. But on Apollo, no, we don't get any of that. Anyway, back to Buzz. He's coming down the ladder. He's at the top of the ladder, and there's a very famous photograph. It's Buzz at the top of the ladder. And it, you think, oh, wow, look, he's just got out of his um, uh, lunar module. He's going to get down the ladder. And you think, hang on a minute, what on earth is going on? For a start, he's lit up like a Christmas tree. You can see all the details in his spacesuit. You can see the bottom of his feet. You can see the ribbing on the uh, on his feet, on his boots. But the directly illuminated surface behind him is not overexposed on this film, Kodak Ektachrome film. But Buzz Aldrin is in shadow. You can see where the sun is. It's behind or the other side of the lander from where he's coming down the ladder. So he's in deep shadow. But the photograph doesn't show that. It shows him as being, as I said, lit up like a Christmas tree. Ah, people will say, no, no, it's the reflective surface of the moon. It's reflecting light from the lunar surface. Absolute rubbish. The lunar surface has the reflectivity of 8%. I 8% of the light hitting it is reflected, which is the same as any road surface, any tarmac road surface has the same reflectivity. No photographer, to my knowledge, goes around saying, oh, we've got enough light reflected off this road, don't worry about a reflector to fill in. Doesn't happen. And yet, Buzz Aldrin is illuminated. That's not the worst of it. The worst of it is, basic rule of all mountaineering is three points of contact at all times with the mountain. A two hands and one foot, or two feet and one hand. Buzz Aldrin's got both feet off the rungs. His left foot stuck out at a stupid angle, his right foot isn't even on the top rung. And yet, here he is coming down. If he'd tripped or fallen, because the top rung of the ladder where his right foot should be, you can go and check the photograph. He's about two or three inches above the top rung. The top rung has an attachment holding it onto the support for the lunar module. So his feet hardly will fit into the space available. So he has to be sure that he's got it in the right place. Now, if you're on top of your garage, clearing the leaves out of the gutter, you're about 10 foot off the ground, you're going to come down the ladder, ask yourself, would you come down the ladder with your left foot stuck out at a stupid angle and your right foot not even on the rung? No, of course you wouldn't. You'd make damn sure that you got at least one foot on the rung before you moved anything else. No, anybody can just go on to the website. You can find these photographs. They're very, very easy to find. Just check them out because ask yourself, how was this photograph taken with a camera that had no viewfinder using photographic film that is destroyed in a vacuum when the subject is in such a ridiculously stupid position that he could well have died if he'd fallen off because his spacesuit could have got torn, in which case he'd boil immediately and it'd be very unpleasant. I have two things to mention. 
which seem to indicate that they were not truly in a vacuum. One is in one of the Apollos, I'm not sure if it's 11 or, or one of the other ones, where they throw an object and you can hear it when it hits the ground. And that should not be the case if they are in a vacuum. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, spot on. That, that was a, a very interesting sequence uh, identified by a guy called Jet Windsor, who's a filmmaker, in his film called uh, Moon Hoax Now, where he identifies, actually there are, there are two, to my knowledge, two sequences he identifies where sound can be heard as, uh, one, I think it's Apollo 14. Anyway, this, this astronaut is hammering one of the core tubes into the lunar surface with a, a little sort of a geological hammer. And you can hear him hammering. Uh, yes, Whoops. and there's another in one space. where they throw something, and at a distance you can hear That's it. That's right. You can hear it at a distance. And one explanation offered by people desperate to try to excuse NASA's bloopers is that, oh, it was a revert. The sound was from the hammer hitting this object was reverberating through his spacesuit and was picked up by his microphone. Well, it's strange that that's the only time it ever happened because there are plenty of other occasions where astronauts are hitting things, but there is no sound, which is what you could expect. And when you get space shuttle astronauts saying, it's really uncanny to watch uh, equipment working and you know it's working, the drills are working, but you can't hear anything. Obviously, you won't hear anything in space. And yet that particular image of the hammer hitting the um, tube into the ground was actually on the official NASA.gov website under the section Space for Children. I, they were trying to explain in relatively simple terms for school children what space was all about. And that particular image was used. Just a few months after Jet Windsor's film came out, they took it down. But somebody got the Wayback Machine and uh, found it. Exactly. Another thing that indicates that they weren't truly in a vacuum, and I'm not sure whether this was Apollo 11 or one of the other Apollos, they apparently had a contraption inside of the spacesuit so that they could drink orange juice by pressing a button on their wrist, and the orange juice would go into the astronaut's mouth, but it leaked out of the neck. Well, if there is a hole that's large enough to let orange juice come out of the spacesuit, the molecules of the juice must be larger than the molecules of air. So air would have gone out much sooner before the orange juice went out of the neck of the spacesuit. Do you recall that scene? Yes, I do. Yeah. And you can see the deposits of, assuming it's orange juice. I think it was supposed to be tang, the, 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 the powdered version of orange juice. That's right. And it was mixed up with water. And anyway, it's, it, it appears as a streak on one particular magazine of film. You can see it on the, on the pictures. And it's the same image on all the pictures, indicating that it was um, basically on the um, sheet of glass in the, in the back of the camera that held the reticules, I, the little crosshairs. It, it's, it's like they tried to wipe it off or they tried to wipe it away and hadn't done a very good job of it. And it's just smeared onto the camera, which has subsequently recorded it. Now, again, you've got a real problem here because assuming that that was, had some sort of water base to it, whether it was powdered tang to start with and mixed with water to make it drinkable, because obviously you're not going to drink powder. If it was made of any form of water, if it was really in a vacuum, it would have vanished because liquid does not survive in a vacuum, it just boils away. Well, that's true. And even before that happened, the air would have gone out of the suit and he would have been dead. Oh, yeah, yes. Um, but which indicates that they weren't on the moon at all. They were in a simulation set somewhere or training. They were doing a training exercise. Which was not a vacuum. And another thing 
that I think I should mention at this point is when they are apparently running or jogging in order to be in near near zero gravity. They, it's not a zero gravity, but it's much lower than the Earth. They would have been jumping much higher than they actually did. Of course they would, yes. In fact, when they were training, I mean, you can see that they, they, they use um, sort of gymnast harnesses. You can see the astronauts, uh, they're, they're told that they've had five, because uh, the gravity on the moon is about one-sixth that of Earth, by right, 16%. When they're training, they have harnesses which remove five-sixths of their body weight. So there they are, they're, they're jumping around, and they can do the most incredible gy gymnastics. They can do double somersaults in the air, they can jump about 20 foot high, and they're having a great deal of fun. On the moon, about 18 inches is about as high as they seem to jump. And it doesn't matter that they're wearing a spacesuit because that won't be affected in the same way because the human muscles are not affected by gravity. Human muscles will have the same power as they would on Earth, on the moon. So you should be able to jump on the moon, you'd probably be able to jump six foot quite easily, probably 12 foot quite easily, but they don't appear to do it. They would have been able to jump much higher than all the modules. They would probably be able to jump the height of a house. Exactly. They could, they could jump right over the module if they wanted And yet to. they didn't. No, they didn't. There's no indication that they did, did anything like that. So there are so many anomalies, inconsistencies, and unexplained details about the whole Apollo record that one has to conclude that at some point after they left Earth, and the, the rocket would have been designed using science, once the rocket leaves view from Earth, we're into science fiction. Precisely. Because it, it doesn't add up. It really doesn't add up. What, what, what we're being asked to believe. Yes, and I'm not going to play a clip of it, but I invite all of our listeners to watch the press conference when they first return, because the valuable part of that is not much the sound, but the looks on their faces when they're asked questions that they were obviously not prepared to answer. Like, did you see stars in the sky when you were on the moon? And they look each other like they don't know what to say because they don't know if they can agree silently about what lie to say. Yeah. It's very sad watching them because these are people who've, who've obviously trained extensively and committed their lives. I mean, all the astronauts were, were, were decent people, no doubt about that. They were brave people. They're basically test pilots. In that press conference, it certainly looks as if they hadn't been properly briefed as to how to answer fairly straightforward questions because uh, the question about could you see stars was actually asked by a guy called Patrick Moore, who is a, a UK astronomer very keen enthusiast about the space program. So you think he might have spotted anything that was, was wrong, but obviously he didn't. And as you say, they just look at each other. Well, did we see stars or not? And Mike Collins says, I don't remember seeing any. And Neil Armstrong basically sort of fumbles his way through it. Uh, you could only see stars when you were looking through the optics, I think was his answer. The optics meaning the little sextant type equipment they were using to sight on, guess what, stars in space so they knew where they were. Hang on, that's how they used to navigate across oceans using sextants and, uh, about 400 years ago. Don't you think things might have improved a bit since then? No, no, they were using star sightings to see the angle between the stars. Now, an interesting point now, just almost as a diversion, several people are now looking at this whole Apollo record, and some of them are airline pilots or commercial pilots who understand how you navigate through space. Navigating an, a light aircraft or even a big aircraft, whether it's a, a Boeing uh, 787 or jumbo jets or the A380 Airbus, a big one, they all use much the same technology. 
They have radio beacons to tell them where to fly towards. They have incredibly sophisticated equipment on board. And they record everything on those famous little black boxes, which are not black, they're red. But on Apollo, they had no little black boxes. They had no recording of what was going on. And yet they could fly 240,000 miles from Earth to the moon. You could say, well, we could see where we were going. The moon is up in the sky. So we just sort of head towards it. No, because the moon in three days, it took Apollo 11 to, to get to the moon, allegedly. The moon would have moved a considerable distance from where it started. It takes 28 days for the moon to orbit the Earth. So in three days, it has moved about 10% of the distance across the sky. Coming back is even worse because the moon is moving and rotating and you've got to try and get to the Earth, which is moving and rotating. And you've got to hit a particular point in the sky at six and a half degrees to the surface. So you can then slow down by using the atmosphere as a brake. The spacecraft don't have brakes. You're doing 25,000 miles an hour. You've got to slow down to about 10 miles an hour, part of which is done by parachutes. But 1,000 miles, if not more, 1,200 miles have to be using the braking effect of the Earth's atmosphere. What temperature do you think will heat the spacecraft up to? Very hot indeed. It's about 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Higher than the melting point of aluminium. Oh, yes. So why didn't the spacecraft just melt? Good question. Did it have a heat shield all around it? Well, the new one does. The Orion, which is Apollo 2.0, is surrounded by heat shield. And in the Orion, the official NASA video about Orion, they actually say that with Orion, they will be able to, for the very first time in history, send human beings through the uh, Van Allen belts. They do, yes. Which uh, it's interesting that the guy who was uh, narrating that video, a guy called Kelly Smith, NASA will not put him up for interview. Do you think that that was done without permission of the higher-ups and they realized it afterwards? I think they realized it afterwards because bear in mind that everybody who now works at NASA, no, there's nobody who works at NASA now who worked there during the Apollo years. They'd have retired or died by now. And all the people who work at NASA, I mean, Kelly Smith is what, 30-odd, something like that, early 30s maybe. You know, he, he's an engineer. He probably works at NASA because he's really enthusiastic about space travel, as I'm sure most of the other employees of NASA are. And he apparently knows that Apollo 11 was not the way it was shown to us, because he, he wouldn't have said that if he weren't aware of that fact. That's the problem NASA have got now. It's a real catch-22 they've got themselves into. Until they can admit that Apollo wasn't real, it was a brilliantly executed propaganda exercise in order to defeat the Soviet Union at the time, but it was not a scientific mission to the moon. Until they can admit that, they can't then move forward and fulfill President Trump's direction that they should land on the moon by 2024, because they can't admit that the Van Allen Belt radiation problem hasn't been overcome yet. NASA, senior NASA scientists have said the amount of radiation in space is greater than we think humans should be subjected to. Well, 50 years ago, they were subjecting 24 astronauts to it on a regular basis. What's the problem? When Orion, which is Apollo 2.0, was tested for the first and only time in December 2014, i.e. nearly five years ago, the heat shield nearly failed. Well, what's the problem with the heat shield? Just go and dig out the old formula for the Apollo heat shield and use that. Oh, no, no, they can't. They've lost the formula. It's called AFCOT 5061. And now they're having to redesign a completely new heat shield that then have to be tested because you can't just send a crew off, which they did on Apollo. Just to go back before Apollo 11, there was Apollo 8, 9 and 10. Apollo 8 was the craft that went to the moon for the first time. 
we're told. No Apollo craft in December 1968, which is when Apollo 8 flew, no Apollo craft had been tested at re-entry speed. So they didn't know the heat shield would work. And also they didn't even know the rocket would work. We haven't even discussed the famous Saturn V rocket that's allegedly got them all to the moon. So they send them up 96, December 1968 to orbit the moon, where they read the book of Genesis as they orbit the moon. They come back to Earth. Everything works fine. They land. Big heroes. Apollo 10 does the same. Then Apollo 11, 12, 13 had a bit of a problem with it. It's a nice bit of space opera, that one. 16, 15, 16, 17. And then President Nixon cancelled the three next missions, Apollo 18, 19, and 20, which are all built, ready to go, paid for, everything. One of them landed up, laid on its side outside the Kennedy Space Center. One of, one of, the, uh, one of the other three was used to launch Skylab, and the, other, the final one was used in the Apollo-Soyuz link-up. So who said we can't cooperate with the Soviets? This was the mid-1970s. And that second clip that you played at the beginning of, of, of the show, Kennedy was trying to cooperate with the Soviet Union. He'd sent several secret messages to Nikita Khrushchev, who was the president of the Soviet Union at the time, or general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, given his proper title. He sent several messages saying, let's cooperate. And initially, Khrushchev thought it was a bit of a trap that they wanted to, that the Americans were only, only going to want to spy on us. Towards the, the end, when that clip came out, which was uh, late 1963, September 1963, Kennedy was prepared to agree to cooperate. And there are memos, I believe they're executive orders, where President Kennedy, one of the final things he did before he was assassinated in November 1963, November the 12th, I believe it was, the executive order was issued saying to the CIA and to NASA, cooperate with the Soviet Union. That was an order from the president. Right. There are many people who believe that the CIA actually has more power than the president and that it's just a facade that the president has more power than they do. I don't know if you have an opinion about that. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, certainly at this time, this is 60s, uh, the CIA were basically running a mock. They were reined in a little bit by the Church Committee of 1975 when a lot of the ridiculously overblown plots, you know, to assassinate Castro, to overthrow the Iranian government of, uh, of Mossadegh, to invade Chile, these all started to come out. Nobody knew about this beforehand. And all the psyops that they did, psychological operations that they did, they killed people left, right and centre. But they're not supposed to even operate on American soil. The CIA operate abroad. The FBI operate on American soil. Officially. Officially, yes. Glad you said that. It's some interesting developments going on now because the CIA, over time, became so corrupted that they had this mad idea that they could overthrow the president of the United States if they didn't like him. And they decided they didn't like the duly elected president of the United States. Yes, I think this is one of the reasons. I think there were more reasons, but I think this is one of the main reasons. Yes, because the famous phrase, nobody thought she could lose, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I want to bring up something in parallel. It's a documentary done by a Spaniard journalist. The name of the documentary, I'm going to say it in its original language, and then I'll translate it. It's Mirlo Rojo, which translates to Red Blackbird. And that's the name of the documentary, and it's the name of his supposedly his real-life contact in NASA who revealed secret information to him. And this documentary does not coincide with your belief and my belief, but I think it's still important to mention what it tries to demonstrate, and then I will give you my opinion about why that all happened, and you can tell me if you have the same theory or not. Mirlo Rojo supposedly is his 
secret contact in NASA who gives him secret information and even secret images about supposedly the real reasons why Apollo went to the moon. So this documentary doesn't even consider the possibility that they never went, but they try to explain the real reason that they went. And supposedly they went because they, through photographs taken from satellites, they discovered that there were alien structures on the moon that were a thousand years old or more. And they wanted to go there to destroy them because if they were to go public with that information, then it would completely change the power structure here on Earth. Now, at this point, in time, when I actually saw that the first time, I actually believed it. But at this point in time, because I do completely respect Juan Jose Benitez, who is the Spaniard who created this, and he's more widely known for his Caballo de Troya series, which is translates to Trojan Horse series. But what I think really happened is that someone in NASA, and this goes back at least 15 years, I think someone in NASA was trying to fight the fact that more and more people believe that Apollo 11 was a fake. So they made up a story and they told this guy Mirlo Rojo that it was true. And Mirlo Rojo, as a NASA employee, actually believed it. And they told him, it's okay if you leak that to your friend in Spain. So I think both of them actually thought that it was true in order to give people more of a a reason to believe that they went up there, but they had another reason to be up there in secret. And I think that was just a, a nice story, but I think they didn't, as you, I, I believe that Apollo 11 or any of the Apollos, I think they were just science fiction. Have you heard about this before? Uh, to be fair, I haven't heard of that particular uh, film. I'll be interested to check it out. Yes, it's spelled M-I-R-L-O and then R-O-J-O. There are various stories that pop up periodically, um, all of which point to one direction. There's the famous one of, um, uh, I think it was at a UN meeting where some ambassador was told by Neil Armstrong and when he was asked what really happened on the moon. And he said, you wouldn't believe the size of their craft. They were on the crater lined up looking at us. They were huge. We had no chance against them. It was a quick scoop and, de and depart. That has no basis in fact. There is no evidence that that, uh, that event actually occurred because there is no record of the conversation taking place. There are various other films which uh, appear to indicate there are ruined structures on the lunar surface. Richard Hoagland is somebody who promotes that quite um, frequently, or he has done until he's got onto Mars, indicating that NASA are hiding these huge structures on the lunar surface. I think the structures on the lunar surface he's looking at are the artifact of the front screen projection uh, screens in the background of some of the photographs, but that's just me. You've got all these people who come forward trying to persuade us that actually man must have gone to the moon if all these secret stories which just come out at convenient moments are true. Because how could they see these spaceships? and How could they see all these ruined structures on the moon if they weren't there to see them? So they had to be there. Therefore, Apollo was real. That's the basis of the story. It's called PSYOPs. It's called disinformation. Yes, and I think that that was the case with Mirlo Rojo, but I'm not trying to discredit Juan Jose Benitez. I believe that he really believed it, and I believe that his contact in NASA either really believed it or was a good enough actor to convince Juan Jose that it was true. I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yes, it, it, would, it would certainly be to the advantage of NASA and its story to persuade well-known filmmakers or respected filmmakers in maybe in other fields as well, who look into the Apollo story and are persuaded by the information that they're given, whether seen in secret or not, and they put it out. 
There's a very good film. It's, it's called American Moon, and it's by an Italian filmmaker and photographer called Massimo Mazzucco. He has done incredible work putting a very, very detailed documentary together, explaining all the problems with Apollo and why it couldn't possibly have happened the way we've been told. One of the key sequences in the film is, he taught, uh, as I said, he's Italian, though he's worked in America for many years. He goes to Italy and he meets a lot of very, very well-known Italian photographers fashion photographers, advertising photographers. These are people who've made their living for many years. They've, they've shot things like Vogue covers, Vanity Fair, people who shot uh, the Pirelli calendar. And he shows the Apollo photographs to these photographers who without exception say, well, you can see where the lights were set up. You can see, I mean, you say these are taken on the moon? No, no, there's no way they could do it unless they had extra lighting. But you say they didn't have any lighting on the moon. No, they're fake, 100% fake. Now, these are professional photographers who know how to read a photograph. That's the point. If you, if, you, if you know enough about the technology behind photography or the technique of photography, you can read a photograph. You can see where the lighting is. You can see where the depth of field is. You can probably estimate the film from the effect that it has on when it's printed. Obviously, you can see if it's black or white or color. You can probably see whether it's a fast film or a slow film. You can see the depth of fields. So you can probably calculate closely what lens was used. So you've got people who understand photography, who understand it, who are saying it's faked. Now, the evidence that people put forward, if you say to somebody, give me three pieces of evidence that you believe confirm the lunar landings, and most of them will say, well, it's the photographs. Couldn't fake those. Well, it's the rocks. Couldn't fake. And they put mirrors on the moon, didn't they? So how else would they got the mirrors up there without uh, somebody putting them there? Because they have to be set at a certain angle. And then there's all the moon rocks. Well, all those are complete fabrications. You don't need mirrors. How many people actually know that on the 9th of May, 1962, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology were firing lasers at the lunar surface and getting a reflection back? No mirror needed. How many people know that moon rocks are now being studied in so much detail that we know exactly what they're made of, and they're identical to Earth rocks? Apollo not needed to get them. 382 kilos or 841 pounds of moon rock were allegedly brought back. Have you seen a piece of moon I rock? have not. Yeah, I've seen one in the Science Museum here in London. There's, uh, there's an exhibition. They've got the Apollo 10 command module on display there as well. And they've got a piece of moon rock there. And I know it's a piece of moon rock because there's a large label on it saying moon rock. So, of course, it's moon rock. They wouldn't lie, would they? In fact, all 50 American states were issued with their own piece of moon rock, as were 90 individual countries. But most of them can't find it now. They lost it. And there's a famous story which is uh, told of the, uh, the Rijksmuseum in Holland. Ten years ago, it was being renovated and they had a space display. And they asked uh, during the renovation, they had to dismantle the space display. So um, local geologists at Leiden University said, oh, could we examine the moon rock while it's on, not on display? And they said, yeah, go ahead. Tell us what it's made of. The answer come back, petrified wood. Nobody told us there was trees on the moon. This was a piece of petrified wood. And it's there on display with a label saying presented to the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Dr. Wilhelm Dries, by the three Apollo 11 astronauts, Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins, during their world tour. Now, it wasn't presented by the three astronauts. They didn't present moon rocks. And they, following the Apollo 11 landing, they didn't have enough moon rock to distribute. They were still trying to catalog it. What is more than likely to have happened is that this particular lump of petrified wood, whatever it was, was found in the possessions when Dr. Wilhelm Dries died. 
and his family found it and found the card which said presented by the Apollo 11 astronauts, assumed that they went together and gave it to the Rijksmuseum. Possibly what was presented was a signed photograph. That's more likely to have been the case because the Apollo 11 astronauts, no, no astronauts just doled out pieces of moon rock. That didn't happen. They were presented officially by the US government to countries around the world and to American states. I'll play the Neil Armstrong final speech and then we'll analyze it and uh, wrap up. Thank you, Mr. Vice President, Mr. President, members of Congress, fellow astronauts, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Wilbur Wright once noted that the only bird that could talk was the parrot. And he didn't fly very well. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be brief. <laughs> this, this week, uh, America's been recalling the Apollo program and reliving uh, the memories of those times in which so many of us here, the colleagues here in the first rows, were immersed. Our old astrogeology mentor, Gene Shoemaker, even called in one of his comets to mark the occasion with spectacular Jovian fireworks. and reminding us once again of the power and consequence of celestial extracurricular activities. Many Americans were part of Apollo, about one or two in each thousand citizens all across the country. They were asked by their country to do the impossible, to envisage, to design, and to build a method of breaking the bonds of Earth's gravity, and then sally forth and visit another heavenly body. The principal elements, leaving Earth, navigating in space, and descending to a planet unencumbered with runways and traffic controls, would include the major requirements necessary for a spacefaring people. Today, a space shuttle flies overhead with an international crew. A number of countries have international space programs. During the space age, we have increased the knowledge of our universe a thousandfold. Today, we have with us uh, a group of students among America's best. To you, we say we have only completed a beginning. We leave you much that is undone. There are great ideas undiscovered, breakthroughs available to those who can remove one of truth's protective layers. There are places to go beyond belief. Those challenges are yours. In many fields, not the least of which is space, because there lies human destiny.
That was 1994, 25 years ago. What do you think about those two things he said about the parrot and the truth's protective layers? They were very interesting comments. It's not the sort of thing that Neil Armstrong would be expected to say. So far as the parrot's concerned, is he trying to indicate that bird that didn't fly very well but could talk a lot? An astronaut. Yes, was maybe analogous to the astronauts. At least the astronauts he worked with. That doesn't mean that future astronauts might not really go as far as they say they're going. That's true, yeah. But also, don't forget that Neil Armstrong himself was probably the best test pilot that was was flying because he'd, he'd, he'd flown in the Korean conflict. He actually had 55 kills to his name. He was a very skilled pilot. There's no dispute about that. He piloted the X-15, the rocket plane, to the edge of space in the mid-1950s. And yet he makes these sort of comments. It, it really doesn't tie in with somebody who is a very committed pilot and flyer. Because to say that to remove one of truth's protective layers, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase that is, has been debated for, ever since he made it. People picked up on it and said, what is he talking about? What does he mean? Is he trying to indicate that there were things that need to be uncovered? The truth has been hidden? That seems to be the general view that people have had, that the, the truth, whether it's about Apollo, whether it's about, there's many other factors involved, many other things involved with uh, to do with secrecy, that we need to uncover them. Here's a question. Uh, Neil Armstrong died in 2012. Do you know where he's buried? No, I don't know the answer. He's buried? off the coast of Florida at sea. Was that his wish in his will? It was his wish, yes. Neil Armstrong is probably the most recognizable name and a very famous person, certainly in the United States, uh, because we're celebrating what he allegedly achieved. We have been over in the UK as well. There have been television programs that are filmed. I've, I watched the film of Apollo 11. Uh, there are many other programs coming up. I might be taking part in a few of them, but that's another story. But you'd think that a man of his caliber and his fame would be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. As is Mirlo Rojo, according to the documentary. <clears throat> because that's where that is reserved for American patriots and American heroes, but not Neil Armstrong. Very few Apollo astronauts are actually buried. I think there's three that are buried there. But uh, it was unusual. And there's also a very interesting sequence of it's, just, it's three 20-minute films um, made by a UK producer. The film is called Analyzing the Astronauts. And this was uh, it's an interesting technique. It's not something that I'd heard of before, but there are forensic scientists who can analyze the way in which somebody answers questions or the way somebody speaks. They, they usually use it for court proceedings. And, and this ability to do forensic analysis on speech is recognized and can be presented in court. This film producer, his name is Richard D. Hall in the UK, had heard of this technique where forensic scientists would analyze somebody's speech and determine if they were telling the truth or not, even though the answers to the questions may indicate that they were telling the truth. How they expressed themselves, what they said, how they said it would all lead maybe to a slightly different answer. Anyway. Richard Hall asked uh, this scientist if he would examine several interviews given by Neil Armstrong and subsequently Buzz Aldrin, but mainly Neil Armstrong, and analyze whether he was telling the truth. And one of the interviews was with uh, Patrick Moore, not at the press conference, but an interview that Neil Armstrong gave in London to Patrick Moore, who was the presenter of a UK program called The Sky at Night. It's the longest running single presenter program in the history of television. It went on for over 50 years. 
And some of the some of the questions that were asked of Neil Armstrong in this program were pretty straightforward. You know, could you see stars? What did you feel like? You know, what was it like in space? The sort of enthusiastic question that somebody would like to have answers to for a man from a man who has allegedly been there, done that, seen it all. But Neil Armstrong's answers were so vague and non-committal. It was as if he was talking about somebody else, not himself. But the conclusion was that Neil Armstrong is speaking as if he hadn't been there. He's referring to himself in the third person, that he hadn't actually experienced what he claimed to have experienced. Same way with Buzz Aldrin, who, when presented with the Bible, refused to swear on it that he'd actually walked on the lunar surface. And just to make his point, he hit the person who presented him with the Bible. I've seen that scene. I guess what I have to ask you now is, do you think Neil Armstrong is a hero or a victim? I think he's a victim a sad victim who's been trapped in something he had no means of uh, understanding the extent of it. He was a flyer. He was a pilot. He loved flying. He, he, he could fly a plane before he could drive a car. At one point from the, the date of Apollo 11 in 69, do you think he knew it wasn't going to be for real? I would say that uh, if, if, if there was a plan B, a backup plan, because bear in mind one thing, the, um, because NASA had announced the whole thing was going to be shown live on television so everybody could participate in it, the one thing that they could not possibly allow to happen is an astronaut dying live on television. They couldn't possibly allow that to happen. Therefore, they had to take precautions to ensure it didn't. And how is that going to happen? By creating a program of landing created out of rehearsal material, simulation, training exercises. It's, that's very easy to achieve. That's not difficult. Ask any filmmaker what goes into creating a film. There's a lot of detail that goes into creating. Scripts have to be written. Storyboards have to be created. Still photographs are taken. All these things can easily be done. But it's not difficult to do it. Right. But what, what I would like to get your opinion of is how long before? Months before? Years before? Uh, probably about a year before. It probably came up around the time of the Apollo 1 fire, where Gus Grissom, um, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee were killed because they put them in pressurized environment. That was January 1966. So you think that when Kennedy died, he died believing that they would really go? Oh, yes, because at that time, they didn't know they couldn't go. Mark you, at the time that Kennedy made the announcement, he basically handed the whole thing over to Johnson, his vice president. That's why it's called the Johnson Space Center in uh, Texas, because he was the guy who got all the money for it. And he was the president during much of the time that Apollo was being put together. Nixon was president at the time of the landing because Johnson had refused to uh, run for his second term because he was so upset by the Vietnam War. I, I would say that uh, the Apollo program was being run... It was started in 61, but that was really just to look at what could happen. They started with the Mercury program as one man in space, Gemini program, two men in space, and Apollo comes along and that's three men in space. And they really started testing the Apollo equipment in the mid-1960s. Do you think that in, in 63, when he changed his tune and said, let's do this together with Russia, do you think he, he said that because he knew that they were having trouble? Or he just wanted to be more open about it. No, I think yeah, I think it's two things. I think he he was becoming aware that it was actually much more difficult than anybody had thought, and that if they got together with the Russians, a it would start to defuse this ridiculous cold war that was going on, and the space race where everybody was sort of competing with each other. The space race complete fabrication. No space race occurred. That that was a media invention to sort of big up America. And Kennedy may well have been aware that the technical problems were almost insurmountable, and the more people that could get involved, i.e. the Soviets, who were well ahead at that point until the death of Sergei Korolev. 
Korolev. He died after a routine operation went rather wrong. But he was the genius behind the Soviet space program, as Werner von Braun was the genius behind the American space program. But because Werner von Braun wasn't allowed to do what he knew he could do, because there was inter-service rivalry between the Army and the Air Force, Werner von Braun couldn't really get started until much later. So I would say Kennedy was, yes, aware of what was going on. And the other person who may well have been involved is Walt Disney, whose stock in trade was fantasy. And he'd worked with Werner von Braun to produce films promoting the space program from the mid-1950s onwards. So if Kennedy was aware, this could be one explanation for why he was so keen to reach out to the uh, Soviet Union. Let's cooperate. Let's do this together, which makes perfect sense. Yes. So in other words, he didn't necessarily know that it was impossible, but he knew that it was extremely difficult and it might be a good joint venture. That's right. Yes. And and that makes perfect sense because uh, there's some very interesting speeches Kennedy gave, which is probably the reason he got killed, because he was identifying the problems that uh, President Trump is now dealing with. But that's another story. Maybe we shouldn't go there. Maybe when you come back another day, we can talk about the Federal Reserve and 9-11 and things like that. But not today. Not today. No, no. We, we, we're talking about Apollo because on July the 20th at, uh, what time is it? Uh, it's about nine o'clock in the evening. They allegedly landed, got out, walked around, picked up rocks, planted a flag, talked to the president, got back, came back to Earth. Heroes. That's what happened on July the 20th. Well, they, they came back three or four days later. And they were then put in quarantine because nobody could be sure that if they'd been to the moon, they wouldn't be bringing back lunar germs, which would inflect the whole world and would all die. So that's why when you see them getting off there onto the USS Hornet, they're wearing what looks like gas masks and, a, and an overall. They're, it's biological yes, protection. And that's exactly what I remember when I watched it, quote unquote, live in 69 with my mother, who was a nurse, she explained about the quarantine and the germs. And of course, we both believed it at the time. L years later, I came to change my opinion about that. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was, it, it's, a, it's a logical conclusion, but it also reinforces the idea they'd been to the moon. Otherwise, why would you need to put them into quarantine? Because they, they spent nearly three weeks, I think it was, just, just under three weeks in this Winnebago van, rather well-appointed one, at Houston. They were flown to Houston from California, where the USS Hornet landed, unloaded this, this Winnebago thing, and then they were flown there. And then that press conference is actually dated August the 12th, 1963. So it was quite a long time after it actually landed. Yes, and recently, Buzz Aldrin published on Twitter a receipt from customs. And that's when I became aware that they actually had to go through customs when they supposedly returned back to Earth. Well, if they come back to Earth, obviously you need to go through <laughs> customs. You know. It could be anybody landing. They're going to show you a passport when you come back from space. You never know who it's going to be. But no, there are so many anomalies in the story. And, and that's what I mean, what, what must be difficult? You see, I can look at it from, from my viewpoint. I'm British. I've lived in Britain. I've never been to America, ironically. I can look at it from attached observer viewpoint. And I can say, you know, I don't have the emotion behind it because it's an emotional event, this. And, you know, people say, do you believe in the moon landings? And I say, it's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of evidence. Let's have a look at the evidence. Where is the evidence? Belief is a matter of religion. It's a religious matter. It's nothing to do with science. So let's talk about science. We've already established that um, vacuum has uh, quite a destructive effect on certain material. And also, you remember the famous uh, sequence where the lunar rover had its rear fender damaged, so they repaired it using a map and some duct tape. Well, duct tape doesn't work in a vacuum. 
it's it's made of a liquid. The adhesive is a liquid. It would it boils away. NASA have officially stated that duct tape does not work in space. So if you start looking at the evidence presented by NASA and you look at the evidence in the photographs, the two are beginning to diverge. And until NASA are prepared to admit that Apollo was a brilliantly executed propaganda exercise, it was a brilliant piece of deception designed to win the Cold War, to win the space race, because Hollywood had the ability, if it was Hollywood, I don't know, filmmakers had the ability to construct it, even in the mid-1960s, using the technology available to them, it achieved its objective. The Cold War was won, the Soviet Union collapsed, America was supreme, American exceptionalism. What's not to like? It worked. So from that point of view, you could say Apollo was a great success. Some people think that the Orion video is a confession in itself, but I guess some people want more. Yes, that, that video is called Trial by Fire. If anybody wants to have a look at it, it's about seven minutes long. It's a very interesting video because it implies that there is so much danger of radiation in space that we have to solve the problem before we can send man through it. I think it says it quite directly. Yes, it does. And the various people say, hey, hang on a minute, 24 guys were sent to the moon in the 60s. What's the problem? They didn't die. What are we not being told about? And also, bear in mind that, that Saturn V rocket, there have been various studies done, and, and this is an interesting point. The studies have been done in Russia, because now Russian scientists, Russian filmmakers, have full access to all the data you or I have access to in the UK, in my case, in the US, in your case, and anybody else around the world, and go online and get access to all the Apollo records, the NASA data, it's all there. What these Russian scientists have done, there's three things. They examined the Saturn V rocket, and said it wasn't powerful enough to launch the payload we were told, 46 tons. It's also not traveling fast enough in the first two minutes of its flight to reach low Earth orbit. It's as if the F-1 engine, which there were five of them powering it, 1.5 million pounds of thrust each, were not producing that level of power, but much lower levels, or about half that level. It's as if it was a fabrication. The engine may well have been real, but could it work at the level we're told it did? And the, and the Russians say it didn't because it wasn't traveling fast enough. You've then got the, the cinematographers in Russia who've taken the Mythbusters program. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes, I have seen it. And it seems like they try to attack all of the things that I would have never even wanted to, to deal with. It, it seems like they don't focus on the most important things. Yeah, good point, Dad. Yeah, this uh, Jamie and Adam on the Mythbusters, and uh, and they try to demonstrate using little models, sort of Lego type models, that of course there was enough light reflected off the lunar surface to illuminate the astronaut as he walked down the ladder. Presumably they're referring to Buzz Aldrin. What they don't show you, which the Russians who tried to duplicate that program, as Jamie and Adam had done for Mythbusters, the Russian filmmakers tried to duplicate it and found they couldn't unless one of the people was wearing a white coat and standing beside the model, so reflecting sufficient light into the model to be picked up on the camera. So it's a fake. And then this firing the lasers at the moon, we've already covered that, it was being done in 1962. So you don't need a mirror on the moon to do it. The lunar surface itself will reflect enough light. Check it out. Russians were doing it as well. The Crimea Astrophysical Laboratory, and would you believe Crimea, were doing the same experiment. So it doesn't matter. So these are the only evidence. Oh, we haven't even discussed the lunar reconnaissance orbiter photographs, which show Apollo landers on the lunar surface with astronauts' footprints. And you believe it? Come on. 
if you've ever looked at your house on Google Earth, which most people will have done, I suspect, if only out of curiosity, you might even have, have seen your car parked outside. If your car has a sunroof, you'd probably be able to see that, that it had a sunroof, and that means you'd know which way the car was pointing, because the sunroof is nearer to the windscreen than to the uh, to the trunk. That photograph on Google Earth was taken by a satellite that was orbiting at 450 miles above the Earth's surface, photographing through the dust and uh, distortion and pollution of the Earth's atmosphere, all 75 miles of it. The photographs of the lunar landers allegedly on the lunar surface were taken by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter using similar equipment by the resolution of half a meter from 15 miles away above the lunar surface through the vacuum of space. And all you can see are a couple of little pixels. You can't identify anything until NASA, God bless them, put a whacking gray arrow on it saying lander or rover or flag. They think the flag's still on the moon after 45 years of intense radiation bombardment, micrometeorite damage. No, it's disappeared. It's vanished. It's been consumed by space. If it were really there. If it were really there. Well, NASA are desperately trying to convince us it really is there by producing these ridiculously photoshopped images showing the landers. And when you look at it in detail, you'll see that the footprints are as wide as the lander. But were they giants or something? 20 foot high? Maybe they didn't jump 20 foot high. But it, they're, they're, they're such ridiculous photographs to be presented as evidence that if anybody says they are, they're not scientific. They're just wishful thinking. Because a lot of people want there to be evidence for the lunar landers because they're so committed to it they're so, they're so bought into the story that they can't step back confront just for a second or two that maybe it wasn't the way we were told maybe there were other reasons for the apollo missions happening the way we're told that it was more political than scientific because we can't even get to the moon now it's been a great conversation marcus allen of nexus magazine nexusmagazine.com thank you alan i really appreciate it to boldlysplitinfinitives.com. Did you know I can help you build your online show as I've done with many others? Whether it's live or phone calls with a human or robotic call screener, pre-recorded and edited only or anything in between? Of course, I'll also help you syndicate your show to have it on places like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. My Capicua FM recently won Best Culture and Society Show from Latin Podcast Awards. I'll show you how important it is to have your own branded RSS, just like ESPN, Leo Laporte, James Cridland, and the USFCC and I currently do with all of my shows. It will be a great conversation from your branded RSS to domains, GDPR, forced SSL, TLS for HTTPS, microphones, and much more. Just visit beyondpodcasting.com to contact me. 